0: Is addiction a disease? Is it a choice? How is God involved when someone struggles with substance abuse? Is he even? Does it take rock bottom or a come to Jesus moment to turn the corner? We're gonna talk about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. I am Sarah Stone. I am the Outreach Director for Young Adults at uh, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, and I am the host for today's show. Um, Here at Theology on Air, we love hearing stories of transformation, uh, whether that's people coming to faith, people walking away from faith, why they do it. But also, uh, we're going to have a different kind of story of transformation today. Um, This is one of those stories. I'm joined by my very dear friend, Sarah Bolton, She's in long-term recovery from alcohol. She's worked in business development for a substance abuse treatment facility, and she's currently in the process of becoming an ordained deacon. And she has a 14-year-old son. Who, excuse me. And she is an artist who really, really loves coffee. And then uh, we've got a surprising twist to Sarah's story, which you're going to hear in a few minutes. But that uh, involves our other guest, uh, Miss Bonnie Helms who uh, started out in adver- university administration, first at the University of Houston for three years and then at Rice University for 15 years. And she spent 10 years as a family law attorney and then 20 years as a family court judge. That might tip you off to where the story is going. but And again, I'm Sarah Stone, I'm your host for today. So we're just gonna hear the story of how these two crazy people met um, and Sarah's story of transformation from addiction. So. Sarah, I'm just going to let you start us off. Where did your story begin? Sure. So,
1: I mean, in terms of addiction, my story started at 11 years old. I was just a baby, 11, the first time that I had a drink or used drugs. And um, from there, it just sort of spiraled. Um, I used until I was 31, so that's 20 years of use. Wow. And uh, the kind of... The kind of addict that I was, um, was more of like a binge drinker um, or, you know, I wasn't to the point that I was using daily. And because of that, I think it was really easy for me to be enabled in my addiction. Um, And there was nobody really like saying, hey, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, we're going to have a baby now. And so um, we have the baby. We up getting married. We ended up getting a divorce in 2009 and uh, moved to Houston. It was interesting. We were we were divorced, but we moved here together. Uh, he worked in oil and gas and um, I had family that lived here. So we decided, you know, we would come to Houston and try to co-parent our child as best we could. He ended up getting remarried and, um, you know, was able to advance in his career. And there was a point when he was traveling all the time for work. Our custody was like 50-50 at that time. And, and my sort of self-righteous indignation, I thought, well, this is not half, this is not 50-50 anymore. So I want more custody and I'm going to take him to court. So we end up in family court and I met this lady yeah. <laughs> in family court. And
0: wasn't um, as pleasant a moment as it is right now, I'm guessing.
1: It was not. No, she was real scary. And <laughs> um, you know, I kind of thought she was gonna take my side because we you know, my attorney did a really good job of making my ex husband look horrible. Uh, but then it was my turn to get on the stand and his attorney did a really good job of making me look horrible. And then the honorable judge Helms said, Ma'am, will you just leave the bench, please? And she told us both that um If if she had to make her decision right now, that she would take our son away from both of us, wow, put him into foster care. Like that's how bad it was.
0: Let me pause you there for a second. So Bonnie, do you even remember the first this first encounter with Sarah?
2: Well, it had gone on for several days, so yes, I recall the week that we spent together uh, with me listening. Any any thoughts or feedback about what that was like, or what was going through your mind? And and I'm
0: also just curious, like how much your faith enters into the decisions you make from the bench. I'm curious about that.
2: There's a lot of prayer involved from my perspective because, uh, Sarah was a gift to me because I did find out how it ended up. So for 20 years though, I made decisions that lots of times I never saw the people again. So I don't know if my decisions were the right or wrong ones, but, um, I, I had very clean intentions In Mm -hmm. all the work that I did, I refused to accept any campaign money from lawyers and I stayed above the fray on that kind of stuff. So that when my decisions were made, they were made based on what I'd heard in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we had really good attorneys that made both sides look bad. And like one of my favorite sayings was Snow White does not marry Godzilla. And (laughs) So, you know, if if there's something really wrong with her, why'd you pick her and marry her? Nobody held a gun to your head or Mm -hmm. vice versa. And when they're both telling me how horrible the other one is, you know. um, So anyway, then trying to get to the truth. And I think where we kind of started going downhill a little bit was when I said, uh, let's, I want a drug test done. And I called the drug testing people and asked for a drug test to be done on both of them. And then I called them both up to the bench and said, well, let's see who's going to be honest with me. Oh. I, have never, I have never been a person that handles people lying to me very well. Mm-hmm. So I said, see, let's see who's going to tell me the truth. And both of them were like, oh, please, please, <laughs> certainly not me. You know, and of course, both of them, my cold busted, both of them. And um, so <laughs> I think that's where she kind of got scared because I did yeah. say that. I said, you know, this, you guys need, and part of the lecture that I did frequently from the bench was I would tell the people that were so absorbed in their anger toward each other that they needed to find a center. They needed to find a core in themselves. And frankly, I didn't care whether it was a mosque or a synagogue or a church, but they needed to find something that they believed in that was bigger and more powerful than they were. That so, sounds
0: similar to what you hear in AA, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so Sarah, take us back to that day from your perspective. She's giving yeah. you a hard sell. What does that feel like? I, I mean, I felt I, I, felt absolutely
1: sick to my stomach. Yeah. Um, I was devastated. I remember leaving the courtroom that day. My attorney turns to me and she said, listen, Sarah, I don't know if you um, are an addict or not, but for the rest of this trial, let's just, you know... Let's, let's not do any drinking. Let's not do any drugs. Um, just until the ball's over. And I said, okay. And about three weeks, about three weeks without using, um, I can recall the first time that I drank after that moment, I was at a fancy dinner with a bunch of friends. There was wine on the table. Everyone else was having a nice glass of wine. And, um, I thought, you know, I can have one glass of wine. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did, you know, I had a couple glasses of wine and what used to be, um, a marker of success for me was if I actually remembered the night, I would black out all the time. Like most times that I drank, I would black out, um, which is a sign of alcoholism. Uh, normal drinkers do not black out, um, and certainly not on the regular. And so, um, I thought, wow, maybe I can do this. And so for the next year, almost, I tried controlled drinking. And that controlled drinking just spiraled into the darkest place that I've ever been in my life. Um, Because now, not only have I faced the fact that I do have a problem with substance use disorder, but I also have the shame packed on top of that of if I get caught, I will lose custody of my child whom I love so dearly. And how old is he at this point? He was like seven or eight at that time. Um, kind of in between seven and eight. And so, um, I would do all kinds of crazy things. I would, um, I would barter with friends. Hey, let's go to dinner and get drinks after. I'll buy dinner, you buy the drinks. I would go to H-E-B and buy groceries, but then take out cash afterwards. So I would have money to spend on alcohol.
0: Okay. Uh, let, me, let me clarify. And I may have missed this. We froze up earlier, but I think it was just me. So I let it go. But you were doing that because what somebody was monitoring your use of money? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That- so whenever we were in court, everything was being like our lives were under a microscope. We were getting random drug tests. We were, um, all of our bank statements and credit card statements had to be turned in, um, to the courts every week. So like they, they could see everything that we were doing. Okay. So you had to
0: find the loopholes. I got you now.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I had, essentially had to steal money from myself to support my habit. Um, so again, like a a normal person would just not drink during their custody trial, but I couldn't um, because I, I suffer from the disease of addiction. Um, And, you know, to your point earlier, is it a disease? Is it a disease? Is it not? Uh, It absolutely is a disease. Um, In fact, in 2016, the surgeon general uh, came up with a report on uh, the disease of addiction. I would, I would suggest anybody Go look up the Surgeon General's Report on Addiction if you question if this is a disease or not. Um, it is so much more than willpower. And um, you know, for anyone who's really questioning that, or if anyone's listening to this and they just feel like um, that, you know, they just don't have the, that they're just too undisciplined or they just don't have the willpower, um, I would, I would suggest going to read that and see because, um, you know, if somebody had cancer, you wouldn't be like, well, pff- just suck it up you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would get you would seek treatment for it and there are so many amazing resources for uh for treatment here in Houston um and all across the nation and the world as well um so
0: moving forward actually before you move forward let uh-huh. me just interject for a second because um this So we're recording this during the great pandemic of 2020. We're not able to get into our um, live studio at KPFT, but this will be aired on KPFT. So I just want to put this out there that KPFT is listener supported community radio. It only happens commercial-free and hearing stories like this if you guys give. So if this kind of stuff is interesting to you and you want to hear more of it, um, go to kpft.org to learn more about giving. And, of course, mention Theology on Air. Give us a shout-out. Um, and, uh, and we'll continue our story, but I may remind you guys of that a couple times while we're talking. Okay, Sarah, so continue us on. Cool,
1: yeah. So um, basically the, the time when we were sort of on hold in our trial – that's because um, Bonnie had uh, had uh, assigned an amicus to our trial, and amicus is basically a state-appointed attorney for the child. And so this amicus was doing home visits. He was visiting with Jack, uh, my son, and um, he was kind of basically putting together a report as to what he thought the the court should do, where 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 they should land with their final judgment, and so. We actually go back to court. It is May of 2014. And at this point, you know, my ex-husband and I just said, we got the amicus's findings back and we said, all right, you know, we're just, we're done. Fighting. And it's such money. This is the experience of both of our lives. Let's just go back to court. Let's be a united front. And, um, and so we go back in and, you know, the judge says, okay, I will sign off on this, but I'm going to ask that you take a parenting class together beforehand.
0: Let me pause you. So it was, this, it
2: was still you, Bonnie? Mm-hmm. It was you, okay. Oh, so, uh, this shows that her luck was not particularly good, or maybe who depends <laughs> on how you, because uh, that was the last year I was on the bench. I retired at the end of 14. So oh, wow. I, think, I think it was a God thing mm-hmm. that we did it then.
1: I know it was a God thing. I know it was. So, um, so you know, finally at long last the trial is over, right? Like I can go, like I don't have anyone checking my bank statements anymore. I don't have to get random drug tests anymore. I can do whatever I want to do. And so there was this one night when I, uh, had a friend over for dinner. She and I shared a bottle of wine, just, you know, a, a perfectly normal amount. But then when she left, I started drinking alone, which I so frequently did at that time. Mm. And I only know that I consumed three and a half bottles of wine by myself, three and a half. Yeah. I saw your eyes get big. It's amazing. I'm alive. Um, because the next morning I saw how many empty bottles there were in the trash can. Mm. And that's the only reason I knew because I blacked out. Um, so that Sunday morning, I, I remember standing in front of the refrigerator feeling absolutely poisoned. Um, I just, I, I needed something to quench my thirst because I was so dehydrated from my awful hangover. And as I was standing there in front of my refrigerator, I will never forget this moment as long as I live, cold airs blasting me in the face. Um, I heard a voice, hmm. that, very clear, a voice tell me you will die if you keep drinking. And I was 31 years old with an eight year old son and I did not want to die. Um, after that I did drink one more time and that next day in my hangover state, I just, I, I pleaded with God, even though I didn't realize that's what I was doing at the moment. Um, I had no relationship with God at that time. So I That's didn't know the voice was God. Question. Yeah, I had no idea. I just was like, oh, conscience. Um, and uh, I went to an AA meeting for the first time without being court ordered to do so or someone advising me to do so because um, I've been to AA meetings a few times in the past. And um, so anyhow, I, I show up to start this program of recovery and that date was June 24th, 2014, and I have not had a drink since.
0: That is amazing. Truly. <laughs> yeah. Bonnie's giving you the thumbs up. For those of you listening on the podcast, she's beaming. Yeah. Um, so, okay. And I want to hear more about all, so many things that you said, but uh, some people may be asking, okay, you guys have this lady, Bonnie Helms here. Is it just to tell us that she's was the judge that spoke <laughs> hard words of truth? How is it that you guys are still in each
2: other's lives. Tell us how that happened. Bonnie, you want to tell? Sure. Um, we go to St. Luke's United Methodist. And so my husband and I had gone to the early service and then to our Sunday school class. And we were headed to our car when he said, we have a new minister who is seating a church and starting it in the uh, gym. Why don't we stop and hear what he has to say? Mm-hmm. So we were going in, and there was this beautiful young woman in front of us that handed us a program. And then she looked at me, and her eyes got huge. And she said, "Are you Judge Hellams? <laughs> and I said, "I said yes." And she said, "May I speak to you alone?" Well, people had tried to break in my house. They've torn up my car. It, it was not a. they not being being a judge in family law matters was not always a positive <laughs> career. Yeah. Uh, so my husband jumped quickly to my side and said, yes, you can talk to both of us. So we we stepped around the corner and she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no, honey, I don't. And so she told me the story and reminded me of who she was and I lost it. And I started, I started crying and I said, I am so grateful because I know that it's turned out right. The decision that I made for you to have him. And um, I'm just so grateful. And then she got, she showed me her chip, and said she had been in recovery now for a period of time. A year at that point. Yeah. And so it's, I, I whew, man, where'd that come from?
0: No, I'm telling you, this is the first podcast where I've ever teared up. It's just theology, guys. My goodness.
2: It, but it was, it was. It was a blessing, a real yeah. blessing for me to be able to it was a God thing. Yeah. The very fact that we showed up, the very fact that she was there. And she said, I yeah, I remember your lecture and I've looked around for church. I can't believe I found the church where you are. Yeah. And um, you know, I just I I feel very much like her other mother. Oh I, I just I just love what she's doing and how she's doing it and the kind of mother that she is and the kind of woman that she is. I'm just incredibly proud. And I'm just so grateful that she's in my life because she's a blessing to everybody that knows her.
0: Okay, if people wanna reach out and have you be their second mom, who do they email? <laughs> <laughs> a sweet, sweet story. I love it. Um, okay, so I want to hear a little bit more about, so, so you, what year was that that you guys met again when she was greeting at the door of the church?
1: Uh, 2015. So this, so our church, um, so St. Luke's United Methodist launched a church within a church called the story Houston. Uh, the story was started to reach non-religious Houstonians. And so when I heard about the mission of the church, I knew I had to get involved right away because, you know, I, because I started using so young and I lived in small towns predominantly very much like the Bible belt. Um, I never felt accepted by the church Um, because of, I mean, quite literally bad theology that I was fed. I thought that there was no way that God could ever love me because I had done too many horrible things. And so it wasn't that I didn't believe in God or even think ill or badly of God. I just thought, well, God's not accessible to me because I'm a bad girl you're broken. So, right I, exactly exactly and then what's funny is then I get into church and I realize we all broke <laughs> <We all broken. laughs> <Bad energy. laughs> yeah. so um then I I hear about this the mission of this story and um, I thought okay a church that's intended to reach non-religious Houstonians I am here for that I identify with that mm-hmm. and I got involved right away um, once i had this spiritual experience which can only be which can only be explained by the presence of god mm-hmm. because i'll tell you in my 20 year drinking career i had so many consequences, so many reasons that should have been enough to get me to stop using. You know, I mentioned earlier the arrest. I've been fired from jobs. I lost a marriage. I've been in car accidents. Um, I've neglected my child. I've lied. I've woken up next to dudes whose name I didn't know. I mean, I've been in horrible situations due to my using, and it was never enough. So you can't tell me that I'm standing in front of my fridge and I hear this voice in the air and that that is what gets me sober. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: God is the only explanation. And then to connect Bonnie and I, I think in the greater Houston area, there's something like 3000 churches.
0: Yeah. Oh, at least
1: of all the churches in all of Houston, what are the odds that Bonnie and I would be in the same church at the same time? And then on top of that, What are the odds? St. Luke's has, I think, 8,000 members. What are the odds that we would be in the same place at the same time, even at the same church? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a coincidence. It's God. And that was five years ago that she and I sort of reconnected. And while we're still here today is because um, Bonnie mentioned being kind of like my second mom. Um, She's also a spiritual mentor to me. Um, so we we have a little joke that she's uh, I'm the Timothy to her Paul. Okay. Um, she has discipled me in so many amazing ways, and a couple of years ago, um, I was invited to. To share my story at a Celebrate Recovery. Um, for those of you who don't know, Celebrate Recovery is sort of a church within a church. Um, they have them all over Houston, and they're specifically intended for people who struggle with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Um, and so I was invited to come share my story there. And of course, I invited Bonnie. And after I finished uh, sharing my story, she came up to me and she said, I think you ought to go to seminary because you're going to be a preacher one day.
0: I said, Bonnie, you
1: are out of your mind. Like, thank you. I,
2: you recall. <laughs> I say, we're keeping this clean yeah, I know, I know, for the radio. I, I, said, so I said, do you remember that <laughs> my, my personal value is that the biggest sin on earth is being given a gift by God that mm-hmm. you don't use to help other people.
0: Yeah. And I
2: said, You have a gift. I think you <laughs> need to go into the ministry. You know what her response was? Can you get on radio? No, she said, Judge, I do Christian yoga. Oh and my gosh. Goodness, oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely, but that's not what I'm talking about. So that's, cute. that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh
0: yeah. Okay, so-, wait. so Sarah, at the at this point when you were speaking for Celebrate Recovery, were you working uh, in recovery? Yeah. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So a couple of years into sobriety, I um, just I felt this this tug to do something different with my career. I uh, I was working as an account manager, very successful, making more money than I'd ever made, and then I literally heard from God. Um, I'm calling you somewhere to help a struggling population. Oh, and don't be afraid of the money. Um, so (laughs) I'm one of the few people who takes jobs to make less money and I'm just, I'm continuing on with that tradition. Uh, as we speak, because I'm in the process of becoming a Methodist deacon. Um, so anyhow, I um, I ended up getting a job in business development for a drug and alcohol treatment center. And I did that for a little over three years. Um, and basically, my job in that role was to um, sort of connect need to resource. So I would go out into the community, I would go to churches, I would go to behavioral health hospitals or meet with therapists. Um, Basically, I would go anywhere where people might encounter someone who was struggling with the disease of addiction and then I would help point them to the resources that could help them get the uh, recovery that they needed.
0: Okay, I like the fact that you say resources, like a British person. That's awesome. Resources. resources. On your schedule. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So does that intersect at all with um, Bonnie as a family court judge? Or do you, did you ever intersect with the um, organizations that Sarah worked with to help people find recovery, or is that part of the job? Yeah.
2: In 2004, I started within my court, a, the first and only right now, <clears throat> infant, uh, family drug court for Harris oh. County. Wow. So the other judges would send to me cause I was licensed as a chemical dependency specialist and addiction specialist. So I knew addictions when I heard it. And when I saw the off the wall behavior so many times, and mm. I probably probably 60 to 70% of the divorces that I heard had substance abuse involvement of one wow. way or another. Mm. And, um, So anyway, it was, yeah, I heard a lot uh, of that in my court, and I started the drug court, and then we found out that some of the parents that we were working with could not follow through on what it was that I was asking them to do, and we would then find out that they had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, from the fact that their mothers drank with when they were pregnant with them and it caused brain development problems and so then we started working with the infants and toddlers and bringing them into the picture as well so that we could hopefully rehab them to the point that was we if you start after they're 3 years old you might as well forget it hmm. you need to start right away with remedial kinds of things so that you can bring those kids that have FASD to their better level. So, yeah. yeah, I'd spent quite a few years doing drug court, and yeah, so I'd heard that kind of thing before.
0: Man, that's amazing. Okay, so Sarah, so you're working in development for a recovery organization, and you're speaking at Celebrate Recovery. She tells you you should become a pastor. You think she's a little crazy. Take us from there. <laughs> um.
1: So I. You know how, have you ever heard someone say that you know something is from God when doors seem to just sort of effortlessly open yeah. um, without you even really trying and the idea seems crazy or absurd? Uh, that's that's kind of how I landed here. This was not a path that I chose for myself. I say that it chose me. Um, all of a sudden, doors started opening and signs started pointing to me going into vocational ministry. And um, I started this process, um, I guess, two and a half years ago. I actually started working on my master's in apologetics at HBU. Path to recovery has looked different than mine. Um, He's had periods of sobriety and going out, sobriety and going out, what we know about this disease is that it is a progressive disease, meaning that over time it gets worse, and more often than not, it's coupled with mental illness. Um, and when left unchecked, it can just really, really start to spiral. And so, um, in 2018, Jack's father um, had an episode that um, basically it meant that now um, I had full custody of Jack um, for a period of time. And I mean, by the grace of God, I just need to update and praise report on that because uh, Jack's dad's now been sober for almost a year. He's actually working for a sober living facility. They're rebuilding their relationship and it is like the most amazing thing ever. I'm so happy about it. But um, when all of that stuff went down and I became a full-time single mom, who also worked full-time, school was just impossible. I mean, there was, no, well, I guess nothing is, in, with God, all things are possible, but it was just, God shut that door because that wasn't where he wanted me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, once I, once I started the master's program, um, there were some other people from my church who, who, who were entering seminary and wanted to Um, become either elders, licensed local pastors, one girl wanted to be a chaplain. And we had so many people from our church who were looking at entering vocational ministry that the district superintendent actually came to our church and interviewed us there. Um, Usually the process looks different, but there were like five of us who were all looking at going into vocational ministry. And so um, my pastor actually, in this email, she included me and I don't know, Bonnie, were you behind that? I don't, know. I don't even know how that happened because it so funny is I I was and I was I was a crazy person at that time. You know, I was I was scared. Um I was concerned for my child and and for his dad. Um it was just, I was so overwhelmed. I got this invite and I was like, okay, my time slot's nine o'clock. I'm going to go. And so I'll never forget. I sit down across the table from this man and (laughs) he is very kind of stern faced and serious. And I just start blabbing to him about my story. He's like, so at the end of it, he goes, So tell me why we're here. And I said, I don't really know why we're here. I (laughs) was like, I was there for an interview. Like he had to approve me to continue on ministry. And it's so funny because it just so happened that a man he'd mentored for 20 years, who is a pastor at a church in Tomball, who is now one of his just dearest friends was also a man in recovery. And so this very stern faced district superintendent of the Methodist church all of a sudden, he leans back, he puts his hair, hands behind his head, he cracks a smile, he goes, Man, you recovery people are just honest to a fault. And I was <laughs> like, We are, because that's what we got. We got to be. We got to be honest yeah. to stay sober. We have to live our lives according to our values in order to maintain recovery. And so we start talking, start talking. And the next thing I know, I was signed up to attend the candidacy summit last January and, um, becoming Methodist clergy is a process. So it takes some time. There's a lot of, um, kind of hurry up and wait, you write this and then you submit this and then you have this interview and that interview. But as it stands, I'm about four fifths of the way into being at a place where I can start interning as a Methodist deacon, And, um, what deacons do in the Methodist Church is sort of uh, serve as a bridge between the church and the outside world, which you've and been doing. Kind of already was doing yeah. it, yeah, in a lot of ways. But now we're just going to make it a little bit more official. And um, I, I am just so jazzed at the opportunity to not only be an advocate to recovery for the church, um, but just to members of the congregation to say, "Hey, like I'm." I'm a woman that um, looked like she had it all together on the outside, too, uh, but was was suffering and struggling in silence. And there is, there is hope for you if that mm-hmm. is where you are. Um, and statistically, one in five people struggle from a mental illness, and one in seven people struggle from substance use disorder at some time in their life.
2: Mm-hmm. So when you
1: think about those statistics, that is a
2: staggering number of people. Yeah. But what I do know, Can I jump in just one second. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, when you have an addiction, because I'm also a therapist that was trained way back when, when you have an addiction, you also have, <clears throat> if you have a substance abuse, you have to treat your substance abuse and your mental illness at the same time, or the the recovery of one will sabotage the recovery of the other. Yeah. So most people don't realize that. They don't realize, okay, now I'm clean and sober, mm-hmm. but I've got, I'm, you know, got paranoia yeah. issues or I've got this or that. And if you don't treat them, you're going to self medicate.
1: Yeah. That's so, so it's true. very
2: important that you get, you're aware of those yeah. two things happening.
1: I'm, I, so I, I like to say I'm a woman in long term recovery. I mean, but really I should just say I'm a woman in lifetime recovery
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because. I, you know, I got sober a couple of years in the sobriety. I found myself in a therapist's office. A couple of years after that, I found myself in a psychiatrist's office. Um, Currently, I'm in an intensive outpatient for an eating disorder. Um, But it takes a lot of time to kind of unpack all of this stuff because the drug use or the alcohol abuse is not the primary problem. There is always an underlying issue that is, the root cause. And I think the mistake that people can make sometimes is um, maybe it's sending someone to rehab and they go to rehab and they come back like, Hey, okay, well, they've been, they've been to rehab. So they're fine now. And yeah. you know that you're just scratching the surface um, at the root of it. Also um, this, this is a
0: spiritual problem. Um, I actually want to pause you there for a second because. Yeah. I've been writing down some questions to ask when there was a break in conversation. I w- Before you get into talking about the spiritual element of this, I'm curious. You have talked a lot about your own faith and how it's kind of intersected with this, but I I know we'll have people listening that are not people of faith and mm-hmm. um, maybe struggle with addiction or know someone that does. So I guess a couple, like a two prong question, would be something like, Can you really do recovery without faith? Without being a believer? Mm-hmm. And, And then sort of how do you think that faith either enriches that or completes that process or enters in? And You were about to start talking about that anyway. So keep mind the skeptic as you're answering, I guess, is my my question. Great.
1: So um, the program of recovery that I am in uh, states that you have to believe in a power greater than yourself in order to maintain sobriety. but that does not have to be God. It okay. doesn't. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of people struggle with the concept of God and my program of recovery, um, because, well, I mean, they've been hurt by the church sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so that's like the last place they want to go to seek refuge. Um, but there, there are many, many paths to recovery. Let me just say that. Um, there's something called refuge recovery and it's a, it's a Buddhist form of recovery, which Hmm. is kind of cool. So like if, if that's something, there's a lot of meditation involved and there are places in Houston where you can uh, actually go to meetings Uh, right now, everything's virtual, but if you just Google refuge recovery, that's an option. There's also something called smart recovery. It's just another program of recovery. Um, There, there are a lot of ways, but, I think the key is knowing that um, if you try to do it alone, it's not that it's impossible, but it's going to be a lot harder and I think pretty miserable um, because so much of my recovery, what it's taught me is how to do relationships and how to be a good friend and how to be a good family member and how to be a good mother. Um, It's so much about community. And then not only do I recover, but I had someone walk alongside me in the form of a sponsor. And so now in order to keep this program going, I sponsor women Mm -hmm. and that's, that's how we do this. So you kind of give what's been so freely given to you. Um, So, yeah, I I definitely don't want to turn anyone away um, by saying, Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not here for the God thing. So that's not for me. Um, That's not true. But I do think that, uh, based on my personal experience and the experiences of people that I know, um, that it is not possible to get sober without some sort of psychic change that brought on children. And that can look different in different people.
0: Okay. And then you were saying for you at least, and I think probably for a lot of people, that the root. Of this is spiritual go go back to that I'm curious what you were yeah reading, the spiritual.
1: so problem. we are all created with this um innate need and desire to connect with God uh, because we're that. created in the image of God mm-hmm. and when we try to fill that void if there's a void there with anything other than God um it can become problematic Mm -hmm. and so maybe it's drugs or alcohol um maybe it's sex Mm -hmm. maybe it's food Mm -hmm. maybe it's scrolling through social media Mm uh maybe it's being the best mom on the block i mean it can look like a lot of different things um but when you think of the definition of sin as simply separation from god think about all the ways that we can sin and i think sometimes we're like oh sin and you are bad because you sinned like that's not the purpose. I don't think that any of God's rules are about God wanting to be right and us being wrong or God wanting to be the boss and us like just fall in line. God set out guidelines for us so that we could live the most painless lives possible and be close to him. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and he just he cares for our hearts so much that he laid out these guidelines for us to live our lives um and and it's you know Oh, we, we live in a broken world. Once mm-hmm. Senator the picture the world became broken, I don't think that addiction would have even been possible before Senator the picture. Um, uh, addiction is not God's will for our life, and I think that anybody can agree to that, whether or not you are Christian or not. Um, addiction is it's it's horrific, and um, I want to be really careful here because I am definitely not saying that um addiction can just be cured with prayer i i don't believe that i don't maybe maybe i mean look crazier things have happened um you know i've read the accounts and acts like i know that you know there have there are miracles that happen every day but i would say that for the average run-of-the-mill you know joe or jill um prayer is a huge aspect of it um and in fact the Program of recovery that I'm involved in, there are 12 steps, and there is a step that is entirely dedicated to prayer and meditation. So, trust me, like believe me when I tell you, I know that that is such an integral part of recovery. Um, But you have to understand that this is a disease of the brain. It's a disease of the mind. Like literally, um, we we have different ways of um, processing alcohol in our body and through our brain. Mm -hmm. So. You have to treat, you have to treat the addiction um, from a psychosocial element as well. It's, yeah. it's not just about the spiritual.
0: It's yeah. a marriage of all of them. I'm glad you said that because I, I think theology on air. I mean, I think I can speak for all the leadership team, and we say that no mental illness, no substance abuse issue is. Um, that we would ever say, well, it's just an issue of sin and worship and you pray your way out of it or you read some verses and of course God can do anything. And sometimes he chooses to step in and miraculously heal somebody. But the majority of the time, this is why we need mental health experts and counselors and friends and the Bonnie Hellams of the world to come along and, and help guide us. So yeah, I, I also have my background in counseling and, um, when I was at, I went to a seminary for my graduate degree, there was a subset of people that wanted to do a certain kind of counseling where it was purely biblical and it was just Bible verses and prayer. There was no, we wouldn't take any advice from any of the, you know, the Freuds and the Youngs and the, all of the sort of fathers of psychology, because that was nonsense and anti-biblical. And it's just, I don't, I'm glad to hear you say that because that is not the line that we would, our party would say we agree with. So that's Yeah.
1: Well, and I think you're really shortchanging God if you're like, this is the only way, because I mean, ultimately, you know, whether someone's an atheist or not, God created them too. (laughs) And everything on this earth is so intentional. It's so, it's so intentional. Um, I mean, scripture tells us that God knows the number of hairs on our heads. Like that, that is how much, intention goes into the creation of each and every person. And granted, I don't think that God wills um, for hurtful or harmful or sinful things to enter the picture, but because we have free will, we're going to bear off paths sometimes. I mean, that's just part of it. But the cool thing is, um, and this is something that scripture tells me, and this is something that my own life experiences tells me um, is that, Um, God uses everything to the good of those who love him, um, who have been called according to their purpose for his purpose for them. And so when I think about, you know, all of my years spent as an addict, all of the crazy things that happened, all of the people that I hurt and all the people that hurt me in the process. Now I get to live my life so differently and people are seeing what God has done in me and through me. And now I get to go and share that with other people. And there's this beautiful ripple effect that I would not have been able to impact the lives of people had I not walked through those storms on my own.
0: Um, And so God was was redeeming that. Yeah. Um, You've talked about storms and because we are very good friends and don't worry, I'm not going to air your dirty laundry here on the air, but um, I know that you've been through some really hard stuff And so my question for you and Bonnie, feel free if you've witnessed this and enough people to to answer as well. But when life is really hard and there's legitimate suffering happening, how do you not go back to drinking? Like, how do you resist? Because I'll say as a friend of a few addicts, whenever something like coronavirus hits, or I know they're struggling with depression or whatever, I'm worried. I'm like, they're going to start using again. I mean, I can't control that, but yeah. what are your kind of go-to? Do you go to extra meetings? Do you, what does that look like?
1: So this is where I'm so grateful for my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sobriety brought me to my faith. Um, I, I don't think I would have darkened the doors of a church, <laughs> um, you know, for any reason other than like looking good on the outside. Um, had I not gotten sober and, um, but then I got inside and realized, like I said, you know, we all broken. Like, there's just as many people that are screwed up in church as there are outside. Um, so when I started to study scripture and just see what it had to say about like the human condition, because I just have a lot of questions. Like, well, if this world is so broken, like, what? Why are we even here? Like, why are we having to do all this stuff? Like, what's what's the point? Um, I I am able to through scripture and through um, the experiences of others understand that everything that we are experiencing on this earth is temporary and that it is all leading up to a life eternal. And that is where my hope lies. Hmm. So I know that in the darkest moments, um, a drink or a drug would not make that situation any better. I mean, it might temporarily, but, yeah. Um, the ramifications would be far worse. Um, and scripture tells us that God draws near the brokenhearted. And I do believe that like I have been in, in moments in recovery where I have l- just literally been hanging on by a thread. I just came out of one actually, um, this intensely dark season. And that's actually why I'm an intensive outpatient right now. Um, I got to a point that I, I was having thoughts of self harm and, um, through, you know, just talking more with my therapist and my psychiatrist, uh, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and it might actually be bipolar depression. We're, we're not sure yet. We're kind of still, you know, seeing what the designation could be. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't end just because you've become a believer. Um, but because I work a program of recovery and because my faith is um, is, really like the central driving force of my life and because of my community, because Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by some real, uh, warrior women, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I mean, I've got two of them right here. Um, Mm -hmm. women who, who love me no matter what, like, I can be the hottest of all hot messes and they still love me just the same. Um, Women who check in on me whenever I'm retreating, because that's what I tend to do when I'm in a depressive state. Like I don't want to share that with people. I just want to be bubbly. Um, And that night that I had the thoughts of self harm, I called a friend collapsed on the floor crying saying, I want to hurt myself. And she wasn't able to come to my side, but she called another friend who Came to my side, and she stayed on the phone with me till that friend got it. Was like calling nine one one. Yeah. Um, so it's
0: my people too. Yeah. And scripture also tells us that God works through people. Bonnie, do you have anything to add to that? Or I mean, I I know you may not
2: actually struggle with addiction, but you've just witnessed it so much. Uh, I, my within my family there has been addiction. My first husband was an addict, mm-hmm. so that's why I became a black belt Eleanor. And I can recognize it it very quickly in other people where there's a problem. But I also can recognize it in the spouse or the boyfriend or whatever, who is the codependent who's trying to work with them and trying to fix them and trying to, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. But, uh, you know, the faith has a huge piece in it, mainly because you have been forgiven Mm. and you are worthy. And God has great things in mind for you if you will just open your heart and mind and listen to him and take advantage. And, you know, sometimes it really is funny with God closes a window but opens a door. You're in the middle of something and you think, you know, this, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. then you look around the corner and then all of a sudden there are all these opportunities that you never could have even dreamed to ask for. And you would not probably have seen them had you stayed in the place where you were. So sometimes God has to kind of nudge you with his toe to get you to move one direction or another.
0: You know, I love, golly, between the two of you, we just got a huge theology lesson. We've got uh, talk about the eternal perspective and this idea that you're worthy. And I think it's interesting. You said you're forgiven and you're worthy being forgiven is kind of the doubling down on the worthiness because we first find out before sin even enters the picture, as Sarah said, that we're worthy because we're made in God's image. Yeah. And if we really believe that we are made in God's image um, and that he created us out of the love, the great love that he had, then there's worthiness to begin with. Then sin messed things up and then he rescued us again. So it's like we're doubly worthy, um, which is all the reason to seek
2: after healing. Yeah. Also, one of my very favorite concepts within the theology is prevenient grace mm-hmm. we were loved before we even were brought into existence mm-hmm. and i it's just and having been a latin person when i was in college pre meaning before and venient that's the actual word in latin for existence yeah and so you know it's a it's real a real clear definition baby I mean, he, he's right there knowing who you are and having such dreams and, and thoughts and love for you, and every time we fall short, he's like, come on back. I still okay. got a place right here. Okay, yeah. so it
0: wouldn't be theology on air if we didn't say words like prevenient grace, and when I have two Methodists on, it was that. <laughs> <laughs> this love. I'm surprised you guys haven't mentioned the table. That's my... <laughs> My running joke with my Methodist friends that we t- all take a drink. Yours would be water. You're all welcome. Yeah, you're all welcome. The table. Yeah. Everyone is welcome at the table because of provenient Grace, and we've come full circle with the Methodists. Um, no, I love, I love uh, joking with my Methodist friends. That that was amazing. Thank you. Okay, uh, before we're finished, I want to do a couple more things. One is I want to ask you guys the question that we ask everybody at the end of one of these podcasts. So I'm going to tell you now, then ask us there. Sarah, a question so you can be thinking of your answer. Okay. We're going to ask you what your least favorite and favorite thing is about Christianity. You can okay. be as raw or as honest as yeah. you want to be. Um, okay. But that'll be the end question. But before that, Sarah, tell us a little bit about um, Sober Eve or any other thing like that that is a. I want to get the plug out there because I just think it's so cool. So Yeah. It is yeah. Is and, yeah.
1: So, a huge part of. Um, or I guess like a blocker, I think to recovery for a lot of people is they're like, well, what am I even going to do with my life? Like, what am I even going to do for fun when I get sober? Because, Mm -hmm. um, for me at least everything that I did was centered around drinking. In fact, I remember, so I got sober June 24th. So right before 4th of July,
0: wait, wait, how many years has it been? How many years sober are you? Uh, five
1: years and some months, it'll be six years in June.
0: Almost six years sober. That's amazing. And yeah. you have a cool tattoo. Since we're recording this, you could show us. Yeah. So I don't, here we go. <laughs> I don't know. A little circle, so, uh, triangle me, thing. For this, this is my day.
1: program of recovery and that's my sobriety date. Um, and,
0: okay. Come uh, back into the frame because we can't hear you. Oh yeah. We need your face. Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so I do. I have my sobriety date tattooed on my arm. I got it at five years sober. Um, just before Sober Eve. Sorry. We got, we got off track a little bit there. I froze up for a second, so I didn't hear. (laughs) So, um, a few years back, some, you know, girlfriends and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a really amazing party on New Year's Eve that felt like you were at a nightclub that was for people in recovery or just people who didn't want to drink. And we were like, yeah, that'd be awesome. We're like, well, maybe let's just do it. Let's just do it and see like if anybody shows up. And year one, we have like 350 people show up to this party. So essentially what we've done is create a pop-up nightclub on New Year's Eve, um, which uh, if you look at statistically New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, is the number one day for alcohol-related traffic fatalities Mm -hmm. every year, like by far. Um, And so we wanted to create this like hot nightclub environment um, that is not going to have a bar or champagne being passed to you at midnight. And so we've done it now for three years. Uh, This is a party with a purpose. So every year we raise enough money to host the party and then any money left over, we donate it to a nonprofit that helps those um, who are doing something to help with recovery. This past year we were able to donate $8,000 to a way out women's center. Uh, A way out women's center is a place that offers free detox to women who have no resources because that's an That's another issue. Um, There are lots of places for men, but a real lack of places for women to get treatment. And so... Um, it was, it was amazing. So it's like, you have all these people who are partying down and they're just like dancing and sweaty. And there's a confetti drop at midnight at a mocktail bar and a DJ spinning. I mean, it is amazing. It is so much fun. And most commonly what people tell me is, you know what, I just haven't even celebrated New Year's Eve since getting sober because there was nothing for me to do. And the fact that we were able to create this you know, this hot environment that is like a nightclub is just the coolest thing. So that's one of them.
0: And if you're listening and you're thinking, well, I don't really struggle with addiction. It's still, you have plenty of people that go there that they aren't struggling with addiction, but they enjoy the party and being able to wake up the next day feeling fresh as a daisy, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. There, there were people uh, just, you know, from our church that wanted to come and just not be around alcohol. Some people it's like annoying, you know, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I could go to a bar now. Like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of past the point of feeling so triggered whenever I'm in that environment, but yeah. it's just annoying. I don't want to be around drunk people. At midnight. Yeah. <laughs> that is not fun to me anymore. So yeah, it's, it's welcome to all. And it's uh $10 um, in advance, $20 at the door. So it's super reasonable. And, um, yeah, we would love for you to join us 2021.
0: All right. So we're actually not going to get to that last question. I'm going to tag it on after we finish for the radio show, but, um, Let's just do this and close us out. Where uh, can people find each of you? If they're interested in chatting more, If you don't want to be found, that's fine. But if people are like, man, I'd really love to talk to one of these women. Is it Facebook? Do you have a website? Bonnie, what about you? If people want to
2: find you, Hi, come to your church. Yeah, right. Come to church. Come. I go to both the story and to, to St. Luke's regular to the big church as well. So we're there all Sunday morning. And, uh, you could meet me there, but, uh, also I am on Facebook. Okay. Um,
0: Perfect. And people can see your name right here. So, and I'm wrapping us up quickly. We're running out of time. Sarah, what about you? Where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So, um, I have a website, at SarahLenae.com. Um, it's my art website, but you could reach me there. My contact info is there. Um, you can find me on Instagram or on Facebook at Sarah Lene Creative.
0: And Lene is L E N E E. And yes. as far as Facebook, I mean, I'm sorry, as far as Theology on Tap, you can find us at slash Theology on Tap Houston. You can search for at Houston TOT on Twitter. You can type in the hashtag Houston TOT on Instagram or Facebook. And of course, Theology on Air is hashtag Theology on Air. Um, Love that you guys joined us today. Thank you to our guests. And um, until next time, question freely, think deeply, disagree as needed.